Hello and welcome to the Oxford Policy Podcast. I'm your host Nikunj Agrawal. This week we are going to talk about education in the post-COVID-19 world. School closures were used to protect children and communities from the impact of COVID-19. The COVID-19 crisis forced school closures in 188 countries, heavily disrupting the learning process of more than 1.7 billion children, youth and their families. This had immediate short-term temporary effects in the form of learning loss. According to a survey, only 8% of the children sampled were studying online regularly and 37% were not studying at all in India. However, long-term impacts like curbing of educational aspirations or the disengagement from the school system may be irreversible. This podcast episode, we will deep dive into some of these adverse consequences and ways to mitigate them as schools are reopening across the low and lower middle income countries. Many children will particularly need support as they transition back to normal life, especially those who have experienced bereavement. We are joined by two incredible guests today who will shed light on this important topic. Rachel Hinton, who is a senior education and social development advisor at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and Dr. Rukmini Banerjee, who is the chief executive officer of Pratham Education Foundation. So let's dive in. Our first guest today is Rachel Hinton, who is a senior education and social development advisor at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. She has over 15 years research and international development experience in the UK, South Asia, Eastern Europe and Sub-Saharan Africa. She jointly established the Building Evidence in Education Global Group with the World Bank, USAID and the UN. And in 2020 jointly launched the Global Evidence in Education Advisory Panel. She joins us today from Oxford. Rachel, thank you for coming to speak to us on the Oxford Policy Podcast. We were hoping that as a policymaker at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, you could shed light on the impact of COVID-19 on education. Um so to start us off, educators and researchers globally have noted the impact that the school closures due to COVID-19 have had on education. Could you lay out for our listeners what those impacts are and the challenges they now pose for educators? Thank you and thank you very much for the opportunity to be on the podcast uh, today. So the most important and very immediate impact on students of course has been the learning loss because that can actually have lifelong impacts for those um children. Um we've actually seen researchers from the PAL network so Sarah Ruto from Kenya and Rukmini Banerjee's team in India actually have continued to highlight and look at the losses that have ensued um actually managed to continue to collect data um even during the, um the covid pandemic and we know it's not just that immediate loss but actually estimates um show that uh, today's children could earn 17 trillion dollars less as a result of this pandemic over their lifetime so it's a huge um impact for students and the poorest and the marginalized um most marginalized have obviously suffered um much more because they were less likely to be able to access remote learning um or have parental support um we see now that they're more likely to have dropped out permanently from school and many many countries where we're working don't actually have out of school um programs and that's partly because we had made huge progress on access over the last decade um and we're also seeing um high levels of mental health issues uh even in this country but also um for example Renu Singh's work from Young Lives in India is showing um that even mothers 
um, are experiencing higher levels of mental stress and levels of violence for children um, have also increased. So that, that raises a lot of challenges for the individual children, but that they have knock-on impact, of course, on teachers. Uh, so you asked me about teachers, and I, I think there are three big challenges. The first is keep the schools open. Um, in Latin America, they suffered the most, the longest closures of any region, 231 days. I mean, Bangladesh as well, schools were closed for 63 consecutive weeks, and in the Philippines, that was 75 weeks. Um, some children without any other resources to help them um, learn or catch up. Um, and so the second challenge is actually understanding the extent of that loss when you're back in the classroom. So to do that, of course, teachers need the mechanism to assess the situation in their classroom. Um, but that requires that they have the support to administer and interpret formative assessments. And that isn't universally um, available. And I think um, thirdly, those teachers are actually um, faced with even wider disparities in learning levels. Um, so how do they adjust their instruction to address that um, disparity? Uh, I've just returned from India where the Mission Bunyad in, in India actually have those kind of catch-up classes um, in numeracy and literacy. There was one lovely girl, um, Rita, she was sitting there very engaged and um, she was 11 and she was saying that she hadn't been able to keep up at all during the pandemic because there was one phone within her family and her elder sisters had access to that. Um, so she was loving the classes and she said they were activity-based and really engaging. Um, so I think there are lots of examples of uh, both what works and the challenges in, in the new report, the Global Education Evidence Advisory Panel. Um, they've published recently the report Prioritising Learning During COVID, and that lays out a lot of the ways to effectively support during or post-pandemic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you already talked about some of the short-term and long-term impact uh, of school closures on students. But what do you think these impacts look like, particularly from the marginalized background of students across the low and lower middle income countries? Yeah, I mean, actually, um, in those low and middle income countries, um, we know that there are about 250 million children under the age of five um, that are at risk of actually not reaching their developmental potential um, because of poverty and of stunting. Uh, so COVID will have worsened that crisis. Um, we said, of course, that the widening of inequalities has been seen there. And so higher income families, of course, had resources to access other means of instruction. Some of them employed tutors, for example. Um, and, and in many ways, they kind of can compensate for uh, those losses. Um, online classes, they were much more likely to be able to access those. Um, and, and even textbooks, I mean, we saw again in India, School teachers were actually going around during COVID actually giving out textbooks, um, but not all families were able to access that sort of resource. So I suppose um, actually across the world, one of the greatest challenges has been the systemic misalignment between the sort of national policies that were put in place and then what the reality was. So, for example, the often common policies um, but actually then wide disparities such as, for example, the internet access. So there's common policies often don't actually match um, the needs. Uh, so I, I think we've, I mean, one, one positive thing is it's made us much more aware 
of local realities and ensuring that there are platforms as well to exchange ideas and experiences um, so that there can be a more rapid response to changing realities and new evidence as we find it. And earlier you were talking about G-Panel. So uh, <coughs> recently, FCDO, the World Bank and the UNICEF uh, through G-Panel, publish a report on the most effective ways to keep children learning during and post-pandemic. So what are some of the key recommendations of the report and what have you found the most challenging barrier to bringing evidence into action? Two, two big questions there. Um, so on the first one, I think um, something that's been very interesting and perhaps not necessarily expected was just how important the role of parents is in the education and the evidence has suggested that interventions to promote parents actually being engaged really can make a big difference. And that's either supporting direct parental instruction or by increasing accountability in the education systems. The World Bank's actually been working on sort of early childhood and parental engagement for a long time. And I think um, one of the challenges for us all in the sector is how do we scale up some of this really promising practice? Um, but during the p pandemic particularly, there's some good examples from, say, Botswana and Bangladesh. Uh, those were where they provided parents with short, targeted learning exercises that they can then do those with their children. Um, I mean, we do have some evidence that was before the pandemic from those non-pandemic settings, and um, that involved also using, say, text messages or emails. And even that has been very um impactful in terms of helping parents have a two-way communication um, that's very personalised and very positive to encourage their children. Um, and that works even with um, parents who, don't, who have low levels of literacy themselves. Uh, There's a good example in the report from Costa Rica uh, showing that SMS text messages um, would really boost the learning and they, they actually showed that um, statistically as well. So, yeah... A lot of examples from across the world, Chile, Ghana, Malawi, all having little nudges to parental engagement have all shown um, that this can make a difference. Uh, in in Delhi and in India, you'll know for a long time they've had Anganwadis, for example, and uh, last week I was there sitting with a mother's group. We were doing some participatory learning activities with them and um, they were ranking down the different impacts that the programme has had. And one of the things that they put us the highest was actually ideas around storytelling and and uh, activities that they could go back and do with their children and how engaged their children were then in in these um, activities and learning simple skills. Uh, so I think we, there's a lot we can learn from around the world. It's just how do you take good ideas that are often small scale, how do we take those to scale so that they can reach a, a much broader range of um, the community? Yeah, your second question, I realised it was two parts, wasn't it? So you asked also about the barriers to bringing evidence into policy. And I think, I mean, that's a, that's something very dear to my heart because I, I feel that we in FCDO have put a lot of resources and have been a, a major player in resourcing evidence. But getting it used isn't always automatic. And I think we sometimes assume that it will be used. Uh, and incentives for academics as well. We, we live in our own little silos and we talk to each other. And um, as an academic, you you will publish something and your incentives are to get a peer-reviewed journal article. And often that's the end of your task, if you like. And so uh, we work very hard in our department, the Research and Evidence Division, that's led by a fantastic chief scientist, Charlotte Watts, 
who's very keen to make sure we think about how does that evidence get get used and therefore communicating it in different ways. It's very hot on making sure that we synthesize and put research out on platforms so we have some of these what works hubs that show positive deviance, if you like. Uh, so we're not just talking about research that exposes barriers and problems, but we actually provide research that has solutions. So I think that the, the second part of, of that answer is also that we, we need to give costs for interventions. So it's all very well saying this, this intervention works, but a policymaker needs to know at what cost. And so it's not just accessible evidence, but it's also giving them the right information. And uh, two, two interventions could be equal impactful, but if one's half the cost, that's really critical for policymakers to know. And uh, we've, we've got a great group called Building Evidence in Education, which is uh, run by Maria of the Secretariat. And uh, she is, has put out some very good guidance note jointly amongst the donors. And one of those is on how you do cost capture in, um, in research. So thank you for laying out these recommendations. Uh, how should education policymakers around the world prioritize when thinking about these recommendations now? So, firstly, schools need to remain open. Secondly, we need to help support catch up from those learning losses, and teaching instructions need to be, uh, you know, need to be adjusted, and the support to teachers provided. Um, and and thirdly, teachers need um, to be provided with um, the support that perhaps they haven't always had in the past. It's an unprecedented challenge, COVID. Um, needing to adapt to new remote learning methods, coping with students who've fallen behind, um, and handling that, that huge distribution of learning in their classes. Um, so I, Gates Foundation in particular has been, have been calling for carefully structured pedagogy um, programs and providing scaffolding, as it's often termed. And I think you know we really need to do that, and we need to take it seriously, and we need to um, fund and resource that for all, all teachers. And following up on one of your recommendations, could you share with us an example from a country of how government can adjust the curriculum to make for the learning loss during the pandemic? I think this is an interesting one because often as um, you know, policymakers don't necessarily want to reduce or to be seen to be what they, is sometimes called dumbing down their curriculum. But actually, it's a very smart thing to reduce the content. And I think the boldest example of this is um, the state or um, academic authority in India, um, SCRT, has actually recommended a reduction of 50% of their syllabus um, for those who've attained foundational literacy and numeracy, and actually even more for those um, who haven't yet reached it. Um, and that's so that they can have time in their curriculum to also go up, go out of the class, go into the catch-up classes, the, that program I mentioned at the beginning, um, Mission Bunyard, to, to do that catch-up. It's very smart. Let's see if uh, that can be realized. Um, it's very difficult for all of us to change, and it's also difficult for, for teachers to, to think that they might actually cut half of the content, but that's what we need to do if we want our kids to learn. According to UNESCO, the annual financing gap over 2015 to 30 for reaching universal pre-primary, primary and secondary education of good quality in low and low middle income countries is 
39 billion dollars this figure has only grown due, uh, due to the pandemic so the big question is do we have the money to solve this humongous challenge well the challenge is definitely big and we know that education requires resources um and this means that we've got to make even more cost effective decisions than we have in the past and a big proportion of the budgets go on teachers and therefore we need to make sure that those teachers are equipped to do their job and that investment is used really wisely such as learning instruction adjustments I mean, Rise Research, Lamp Pritchett, who leads the fabulous research on improving systems of education um, program, um, has argued for a long time that it isn't just the inputs that matter, um, but it's also about uh, all of the system issues, um, at, you know, beyond that. Uh, and, and UNICEF's Time on Task study, for example, shows there are, there are changes that can be made in the classroom in terms of how teachers use their time to make a difference for students. So... We've, we've learned as well what a huge resource there is in the community and parents. Let's, let's do more. Let's think outside the box and give parents um, some of the resources that they need as well to make a difference for their children. If anyone cares about the learning and the future income and happiness of their children, then it's the parents and the caregivers. So let's also equip them with some of those resources too. Thank you again for sharing your insights on the global learning poverty exacerbated by COVID-19. We will now go to a thought leader to understand how they have tried solving this complex challenge at their organization. Dr. Rukmini Banerjee is the Chief Executive Officer of Pratham Education Foundation. She has previously led Pratham's research and assessment efforts, including the annual status of education report, also known as ASER. She was awarded the Yidan Prize for Education Development last year. Rukmini thank you for coming on the Oxford Policy Podcast and speaking to us. Uh, Rachel Hinton from Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office shared her thoughts on the impact of COVID-19 on education. And we were hoping that as a practitioner, you can share some solutions to those challenges. Pratham is a global thought leader in the field of education and has innovated tools like teaching at right level and also reports among others. Pratham's vision is encapsulated in your motto, every child in school and learning well. To start us off, uh, could you introduce us to Pratham and the context where you work? So I think that, you know, we are almost uh, more than 25 years old. And to some extent, I think our uh, tagline uh, was relevant at the time we started, but is still relevant. Uh, in the middle couple of years, we were thinking about this every child in school is almost, almost completely universal, at least in India. And therefore, is it, does it worth, does it, you know, make sense to still have it in your tagline. And then along came COVID. And I think we have to say every child back in school again and learning even better. <laughs> I think that is kind of the place where we are. So in these 25 years, we've done a whole bunch of things, but I think they're all targeted to how can you help children learn, learn well, and of course, stay on in school. Uh, and, you know, at different points in this journey, we focused on maybe on different parts of uh, what it means to have a child in school. So whether it's early childhood, whether it is this kind of catch up, uh, we are also now working at what happens to kids when they leave elementary school. So at different points, looking at you know what are the current gaps and what can people like us, just ordinary people, 
um, you know, uh, contribute to filling the gaps. Thank you so much for that uh, introduction to Pratham. One of the proposed methods to support learners who have fallen behind is global public goods in education. United Nations Secretary General also called to focus on delivering more global public goods. Uh, so according to you, what are some global public goods in education and what do they look like in practice? And are there any examples that come to your mind to overcoming the learning loss due to the pandemic and particularly the exacerbated global learning poverty? So I would say that I think in the last uh, some years, uh, it could be 10 years for some countries and maybe five years for others, the realization that we have been quite successful in bringing children to school but less successful in ensuring that every year of schooling translates into a substantial amount of increase in learning. I think that realization that we are not quite doing a good job there has been now settling in. And so at some level, even before COVID, that we need to really work on this was you know, gaining ground. And then along comes COVID with you know, all the disruptions and the discontinuities and uh, problems. I think in a way, if we hadn't begun to realize that learning was a problem, it would have been even more difficult. So as I see it, I see two major challenges. I mean, there are hundreds of challenges, sure. but I'd like to think of them as in primary education or for younger children, two major things that we should think about and probably think about in a new way. One is there's a whole cohort of kids who are in first and second grade today. And maybe I'm very influenced by the experience in India where school closures have been the longest. And it's not just that there was a disruption. I think it was just like closed. And then two years later, just uh, last week, I was in Kashmir, where schools have been closed for almost three years, right? right. So this is not like a minor discontinuity. It's right. like a whole, kids don't remember what it's like to go to school. Um, and so I think that for the younger age group, for kids who are in first and second grade, we have to think afresh. They didn't have preschool. They didn't have first grade. And they're in, straight in second grade almost from the lap of their grandparents into second grade. So, you know, giving them what was normally done in second grade is absolutely not appropriate. So there is an opportunity, I think, to think afresh, but how do you begin school? How do you spend your first couple of years? And I think it's a real opportunity. Uh, I This is, I'm borrowing words of some other people, but uh, to say this is a great opportunity to do preschoolification of the early grades in school, mm. which probably needed to be done anyway, but there wasn't the right opportunity. So how do we scaffold, support, and uh, encourage children at this age who are coming through this crisis? And then of course, the second one is the catch up. So kids who are today in say fourth grade were last in school for a few months in second grade. And again, I think that all this, you know, uh, over ambitious curriculum, which led to in the famous paper that Lant, uh, Pritchett, and Amanda Beattie wrote called The Negative Consequences of Overambitious Curriculum. This has, been, I mean, this has been documented and researched. But I think it actually being accepted and understood by you know, a large number of practitioners and policymakers, I think there's a good chance of that happening now because you can blame it all on this external disaster that happened. Mm -hmm. And it's not really the fault of anybody. So I think that next, the other big challenge is how do you do this catch up? How do you do it quickly? How do you do it durably? And how do you do it in a way that unleashes the positive energy of teachers and children 
to say we are back and we are back even better. So these are the two things I would say are the critical things and opportunities for us to think about them differently and do them better. So talking about teachers, we saw great disparities between developed countries and developing countries regarding support to teachers. How should education systems adapt their support to teachers during and after the pandemic? And how can we improve teacher training and support in lower income countries? So I do think that I think, uh, again, you know, I'm stressing the fact that there is a new opportunity because we know there has been, uh, you know, a big disaster. And I think that the opportunity should start with stating goals. If you know which station you're going to get off at, then you can be on the train quite happily. And you can have a snack when you think you can have a snack because you know when your station is coming. But if you're just on a journey and you don't know where you're headed, then it's very difficult to provide the right kind of support, I think. Mm-hmm. And hence, a lot of teacher training has been generalized, right. you know, you know, subject knowledge or generalized, you know, classroom organization. But if you have a very specific goal, let's say, and, you know, obviously I'm coming from Pratham experience of doing many years of this catch up. If the goal was very clearly stated to say, I want to make sure that all kids can read, you know, a reasonable size story fluently and be able to discuss it. Now, if that's my goal, then it's much easier, I think, to align all the pieces uh, you know, with teachers, with support, with training, with materials, with activities, with on-site, you know, uh, whether you call it monitoring or support, to be able to achieve that goal, because we are all shooting for the same thing. And, uh, you know, as we come out of this uh, period, I think setting our sights on achievable goals is very important, because I think you want the system to feel very alive again and not that you're stuck trying to do an impossible task. So achievable goals, alignment of purpose of everybody in the system to achieve those goals. And to be honest enough to say that some people will achieve those goals faster than others. And therefore those who need more help will should get the help. So that's the way I look at it. And we have also seen that going back to school is one of the most important and effective policies to guarantee student learning. Uh, and mental health during the pandemic as well. And you were just giving an example of Kashmir in that context. However, it also involves risks to uh, schools and many countries face backlash from educators or took a long time to go back to in-person learning. So how could governments support the teachers and schools better to engage them in a safe school reopening process? So I think another lesson from the uh, school closure time and from COVID is the fact that at any time, I think in any country, the situation regarding the pandemic was different in different places. And yet, exactly like how we do with our school systems, where you have like one curriculum for the whole country, and chapter one begins at the same time, and chapter 20 ends at the same time, you had these completely, you know, across the board policies for when schools should be open or shut. I remember I was in Chhattisgarh, one of our central states in India, sometime. They opened their schools actually quite early. They opened last July. And I was wearing a mask. And in many villages, the children asked me, why are you wearing a mask? Do you have COVID? Because they hadn't had any COVID case in their whole district. And so why should their schools have been closed so long? So perhaps one of the things we need to take out of this is how do we enable decentralized decision-making both on school functioning, you know, like being open or shut or whatever, as well as what happens inside schools. 
Uh, and right now, you know, somebody at a higher level takes these decisions. But if you work systematically to say there are certain decisions that should be taken locally, because really the safe school and when to open school is a negotiated contract between parents and teachers. It's not really anybody else. And in any case, depending on the terrain in which you are, like if you are in a sparsely populated village, the kids are actually playing anyway. So the safety of that whole situation maybe has to be thought about if there are teachers coming from far away or you know other things. So decentralized and you know inclusive decision making, which brings the school community and the parents and whoever is the you know the community governance, whether it's the panchayat or the you know the municipal, whoever the authorities are, in a in a in a in a situation where they're used to talking to each other. You know, you're not only meeting because there's a disaster. You know, there are, you, maybe you organize, you know, fairs together. Maybe you organize all kinds of other things. Then it's not unnatural to be able to come together to take, you know, key decisions. And talking about decentralized and inclusive decision making, you rightly pointed out one of the important stakeholders are actually the parents. Mm -hmm. And you served as an advisory panelist for the report, The Most Effective Ways to Keep Children Learning During and Post-Pandemic. And one of the key recommendations in the report is encouraging parental engagement. So how can we engage parents in education directly and encourage active participation in the school? So if you look across the board, and I'm sure you know what, I, what we saw in India must be true elsewhere, that all parents at different levels had to get much more engaged directly with children's learning because there wasn't anybody else. And whether you did it at the elite level where you looked over your child's shoulder while they were in an online class, or whether you and your child struggled with a textbook that you had, I think everybody did an extra mile. And if you look at the, you know, we did two ASAR reports, which were phone surveys, one in September 2020 and one in September 2021, where basically you had phone calls with parents. And the data from that showed us that, you know, Children are getting some help at home. Now, I don't want to get into the nature of what quality the help is, but the fact that parents and siblings, siblings are another very important source, were doing what they could. And obviously what they could was dependent on what was available, what they knew and so on. But again, I think across the board, at least in India, there's a realization that this is a potential. Parents at the high end may buy, you know, ed tech, high flung software to help kids. Uh, and uh, test it out themselves. And maybe the low educated parents are trying to help kids with their worksheets. The point is, I think that the 10, 12 years, last 10, 12 years of universal elementary education has led to many parents having at least some schooling that should be leveraged right now. So again, you know, we should get out of our disaster mode where you do uncommon things to help people in disasters. The common, uh, I think, case from India is that the Kumbh Mela, which is a massive religious event, is very well managed. But the same city in the non-event uh, time functions very badly. So we are clearly capable of organized and focused high effort in, in unusual situations. But how do we take the things we learned during that time and put it into our normal practice? So I'll just give you one example. We feel that especially to help the younger children, the first and second graders, and to give them a better scaffolding, this is the time to bring in, uh, in an organized way, uh, the parents, especially the mothers. And during COVID, we've been doing, in the villages where we had some 
direct contact and that you know close to eight ten thousand communities some uh, villages and some urban areas as well we formed mothers groups in the immediate neighborhood mohalla as we call it and these mothers groups have been meeting once a week once in 10 days and they do some activities together and the activities they do are of course on what they can do with their children now doing this in the community repeatedly has built some confidence you know, hopefully some capability as well and now when we suggest this to state governments there are state governments who are saying why not have mother workshops in school so for example punjab has been doing these all schools in punjab they have a pre primary grade so they've been inviting the mothers of the pre primary kids and doing activities with them and saying can you do these at home so these are all i think very um you know straightforward ways they don't need more money they just need a little bit of patience and time and say a saturday morning to say come on in and let's do this these are the kinds of things that i think if parents from the early grades of their children are accustomed to being part of the learning journey and what they have to do with their children is not complicated and that you're not doing it alone you often are part of a group or part of a school activity that will make this parental engagement grow and you were just giving an example of these state workshops mm-hmm. at at a state level right so when we think about parental engagement what do you think are some of the biggest barriers for governments to encourage that especially for better delivery or holistic education at scale and how is pratham trying to crack that puzzle so two or three pieces again experiences from covid that i am sometimes surprised as to why were we not doing these earlier but because in the early stages of the lockdown it was truly a lockdown you couldn't do anything so obviously a lot of people depended on phones and we realized that with our communities with our parents uh, you know sometimes you know 50% of parents did not have a smartphone so we started using sms a lot and sms a lot not just an sms but also a phone call so let's say i send you messages the whole week and then i call you once to say you know did you see it did you do it and so on and so forth and this process of this two way communication based on some very little i mean an sms is 160 characters and it's amazing how much you can do in 160 characters in terms of encouraging one activity right like i remember my favorite one is take a, a piece of thread which is 30 centimeters see how many shapes you can make measure and write it down you know we'll have to fit it into 30 uh, 160 characters but that actually you can do lots of things with just that but did this appeal to parents did they actually do it with their children who did it who got stuck i won't know until i call and i find out and who calls it has to be somebody that the parents know it can't be a bot that collects this information because why should i talk to somebody i don't know or to yeah. a machine and i would say that you know we have worked for many years doing teaching at the right level but i often say that during these two years we learned a lot about reaching at the right level because if i can find an activity that you as a parent like to do then there's a lot of things you will do with your kid that i can work with you to do but if i send you something which is very curriculum like which you you don't relate to or you feel it's not possible to do then that whole sending you that message is useless so these are things i think that you know i wouldn't have we wouldn't have guessed that this would be the way to work it's you figure it out you know let's say that we prepared all these messages and we thought they were great and you called parents and they were like i don't know what you're doing so then you took three steps back one step forward 
we've just recently, just on this last thing on this, we decided that since during um, the you know last two years, we've sent out, I mean, in the peak time of the lockdown, we were sending out three to 400,000 messages a day. Wow. So, you know, you want to know whether all of this made any difference. And of course, in the early time, this was all to keep people engaged and keep people talking and communicating and so on. And uh, there was a certain feeling that kids and parents need to be distracted by doing something that is not related to worrying about the pandemic. But more recently, you know, we've been curious about does this do anything to your you know, basic foundational learning. So just in April, we did a little study and JPAL helped us to randomize it a bit that there were, we had about a thousand villages. So about 300 had nothing, 300 got just SMS messages daily and 300 got SMS messages and a phone call a week, once a week. And we looked at, we did it with math, very, very basic math. So the kids who were whose families were getting these messages were kids who were in third, fourth, or fifth grade, but not yet able to do a two-digit subtraction problem. And what we saw at the end of this, you know, and we are still, in fact, uh, our JPAL colleague is on leave. So I'm, before we put it out in public, so this is preliminary. They may say this is all rubbish, but hopefully not. It's quite a large sample size, like right. 36, 40,000 kids. So I doubt that this will be, you know, not significant. But what, it's, what we saw is that with the phone call and the SMS, there was like a, you know, a, a, almost like an eight percentage point difference between what was happening to these kids and to the control group. Right. And this was, you know, this was just a trial. If you tweaked it more, you did slightly more calls. So I think that these are the kinds of things where, you know, as you're going along and you have a good hunch that this is now beginning to work, you need to follow it up with some amount of rigorous measurement to say that you're on the right track and then build off of that. I mean, maybe the WhatsApp messages were creating a bigger effect, but we thought we should do the lowest tech thing we are doing, but on the bigger scale to figure out whether this is uh, if this is working. And you know, these kind of results don't tell you all the things that the parents told you to make your own messaging better. You know? yeah. yeah, and so SMS is a wonderful example of using and leveraging technology. Uh, so what are some of the biggest lessons learned in terms of the use of technology as an education tool during COVID? Uh, what went well or didn't went well according to you uh, around that and how can we improve moving forward? So I think this is a very big question and I feel like it is almost like a national question mm -hmm. that anybody who has been any part of this, you know, everybody talks about digital divide, mm -hmm. but I don't think we are investigating, you know, what is the divide and what is the digital, uh, you know, whether it is bridging it or not bridging it and so on. So I can only speak from our own experience to say SMS everybody has. And we also did two things. One is that you sent the, the, I think the combination of human interaction and technology, and what is the kind of the, the combination that works best is something that needs to be continuously figured out. I don't think there's a static answer to this. So we sent messages to, especially to uh, families directly, but we also have these mother's groups. So it's not just that you are being sent a message alone, but you also have an opportunity to work things out together. And ideally, if this all was also in relationship with the school. So for example, for an average teacher of a government school in India, she may have 35 kids in her class. but She could easily make five phone calls a day to families. And in one week, she'll have spoken to all the parents. So if that works, it's, it's not clear it's the technology. I think it's the combination of 
that the access to the device, whatever is being delivered to the device, and what feedback you're giving as a result of being able to talk to each other. And I, you know, I strongly feel that all actors who've been part of some kind of a digital, um, you know, delivery need to put out in the public space what according to them worked and what didn't. Right. Because then that will at least help a lot of other people from not making the same mistakes yeah. and building off of, you know, some good insights that, you know, people have put. Now, I know from some private schools who had no problem with access to technology, connectivity, and so on, where the teachers feel that they under, I mean, that they overestimated what was going on. And now that the kids have come back to school, they feel like they thought they were at a certain level, but they've had to take many steps back. I think even these experiences need to be, you know, understood better because we are going to have digital devices and resources that we should use. But should they be seen only as a, you know, should I be only seen as a consumer of all this? Or could I have this two-way business? We've seen in some of our programs that the kids send you back lots of stuff, which actually could feed more kids. <laughs> right. So it's not just the, you know, the software creator making something and sending it to you. It could be the kids sending you things that they made back. So I think it's a very rich field, but it gets categorized in kind of very static ways. And I don't think there's enough um, analysis of what, you know, how do I think what I did worked? I, I haven't seen too much, you know, of that, yeah. And uh, the deployment of technology in education during COVID was largely an emergency response. Correct. Not tightly planned with a focus on covering as large a surface area as possible. If we want to continue deploying technology at scale in education, but in a slightly more predictable post-COVID environment, how might that deployment and use of technology differ from what we have seen in recent years? So I'm sure, see, one thing that happened during COVID is whether it was the government or whether it was other actors, everybody tried many things. And I think there was a lot of openness about sharing. Again, disasters bring out the best in us sometimes. But from that, what did we learn and what do we, you know, even the hunch of people who are involved. So things like, I feel like, why should there not be device libraries in villages? Right. You know, maybe you have 10 tablets because in the end that, you know, phone screen is limiting, right? And only some people have it. But if you have even 10 tablets in a village, it could be used for multiple purposes by multiple groups of people. And then you could think about how tablets or whatever, whatever allows, more people to access things. And then I think, you know, looking at, you know, people talk about flipped classrooms and all kinds of things, that what role does this thing play in the learning journey of the community? Not just of the, like we find that when our young mothers have access to a tablet, their status in the community goes up. Now, it's not like there's a direct connection to their children's learning, but if a mom feels empowered, she's likely to do, and that she feels that somebody thought that she was, you know, uh, worthy of being given a tablet and capable of doing something with their kids. I mean, that just rises, raises aspirations and expectations, which in themselves may have an effect, which has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with prestige and capability and stuff like this, right? So there could be many different ways in which, so I would say that this collective, I mean, we, the other thing that I think in Pratham we do a lot is, 
that there is behavior in individually, but there is a lot of strength in groups, groups of children, groups of mothers, groups of whoever, uh, groups of teachers who could be connected to other resources elsewhere, be connected to communication with other people, which could help to enhance, you know, some of the weak. I mean, they help to deal with some of the weaknesses that you know you feel. You should have choice. That as a group of teachers in the school, we feel among the thousand things we need to know, these are the two high priority things. And can we choose who we connect to to get that? Should it always come only mandated from above? So I think choice, some kind of a collective, you know, responsibility, some kind of a ability to be able to access resources that everyone can use. I think on the backs of technology, these are some of the things that we should put in. And building on the recent example that you just gave, uh, how has COVID and the lesson learns changed how Pratham plans to approach the use of existing technology in reduce, reducing education disparities? So one, I mean, we also work at such a basic level that sometimes it sounds like, oh, you know. I mean, <laughs> I think digital capability of everyone has to be raised. I'll give you an example. We are, uh, this summer, we ran, it's just about coming to an end now. We ran very large one-month uh, summer camps using teaching at the right level approach, but in a kind of a mini learning camp kind of way. And we appeal to young people in communities, mohallas, to say, are you willing to give a month, an hour a day or two hours a day, for like say maybe eight or 10 children in your community? Along with this, we will help you to get a very basic digital readiness course. The digital readiness course involved up, uh, volunteer uploading their own information on a portal. You know, I am Nikunj. I'm studying in college, uh, I have a smartphone, I live in such and such village, just very basic information. And then they've uploaded the baseline and the end lines of the kids. And during the course of this one month, they connected on Zoom with their trainer. And they sometimes had assignments like, go find a story on the web or send me a WhatsApp picture or whatever. So at the end of this, what they got was actually the experience with the kids with all of this built in. But they, these experiences with the digital you know, capability would enable you to do many more things. So I think the raising of digital capability to enable you to do a whole variety of things is really important. With our mothers groups, we are doing the same thing. That part of reaching them is that I'm gonna reach you through some other means, not face to face. Because that both enables you to become more independent and enables us to reach more people. So this I think is a common thing across the board. And the other common thing is that we are seeing that, you know, if you appeal to people to do a very reasonable thing, a lots of people come forward. And the moment is such that, again, I think the aftermath, hopefully it's the aftermath of a disaster is still there, that we need to do something extra to overcome the difficulties we've had. And almost everybody is willing to do a little bit extra. So how do you use that? And if you use technology, you can reach many more people, you know, like this. And lastly, what's your idealistic vision for education in a post-pandemic world? So I feel like this foundation is very, is a very important thing because it's not just your reading and writing and whatever other cognitive capabilities. I think getting these things on time enables you to have a very strong vision of yourself. You know, so you know there are so many kids in India who. Very openly, people will say, oh, he doesn't know anything, he's at the back of the class. I mean, that's like a waste of national resources. So your foundational learning coming to you in time 
is helps to strengthen your own vision of yourself and unleash further potential that you have. Because if you are at grade level, then the school system in India is not bad for you. Because we all know what to do at grade level. It's when you're below that grade level that nobody knows how to get you there. So I think this foundational business has to be taken very seriously because that is going to be the base on which India can build whatever vision we have. The second thing I think is that we need to really rethink what do we do in upper primary grades. Um, and, you know, I'm not going beyond this because, you know, we are called Pratham. Pratham means primary, so I'm very much still in the elementary stage. Because I think as soon as all your basic foundational skills of, you know, basic uh, math and reading and arguing and writing and not, you know, debating, these are foundational skills according to me, uh, are in place, then you should have choice because that then gives you responsibility for what is it that you want to learn. And, and then once you choose, then you should have support. Then I think there's a whole set of skills which we, would be, which we are calling learning for life, which we don't do in our schools. And which again, during COVID, I think children may have lost on academic skills, but I, have, I think have gained on learning for life. What happens when your father is stuck in the city and you guys are in the village and there isn't enough to go around? I mean, how did the family cope? The kids learned quite a bit of that. What happens when someone was really sick and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think that there needs to be a little bit more focus on everyday skills, on learning for life, because many of those things actually are gonna build the critical uh, thinking capabilities, the application to knowledge, which could go from life to school, as opposed to I'm gonna learn math, but somebody's gonna teach me how to apply it to the market. You know what I mean? And I think if you re-look at the upper primary curriculum, then what is it that we are all shoot, I mean, our entire education system in India is for you to do reasonably, I mean, is to prepare you for some exam in 10th grade, which is very academic with the assumption that you're gonna go forward into college and have a white collar job. That's the entire education system is built on that, right? That's the expectations. And yet we know that organized sector jobs in India are very few. So the skills you're need, going to need to have is collaboration, uh, you know, some kind of a entrepreneurship mindset, ability to take initiative, to be able to lead your teams. Why should you not start all this very early? because that's actually what you're gonna end up doing, right? So I think that beyond the foundational level, at least say beyond primary school, we need a massive rethink about where, what is the pathway that we want people to be prepared for? Right now there is one pathway you're preparing kids for. I mean, right now in India, you know, much of India is burning because of this, you know, recruitment into the army things. But I think that is indicating that young people need more options, need more pathways, and we are unprepared. And therefore, these 40,000 or 80,000 people that are taken into the military and, you know, millions of people apply is the only way forward, which seems, you know, a real, again, waste of sort of national energy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rukmini We are very grateful to you for taking our time and sharing your insights on lessons learned during the COVID-19 pandemic and Pratham's important work in this space. Uh, we look forward to following more of the work <laughs> in the future. And uh, thank you once again for joining us today. No, lovely talking to you. I'm happy to talk anytime. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Oxford Policy Podcast. Our show today was hosted and developed by me, Nikunj Agrawal, with support from Claudia Nicklockley, Ellen Gracon, and Emma Dreyer. 
Our executive producers are Libby Beha and Reed Leesk. Thanks for listening.